we create this sense of an individual self that's stuck out there and doing things in their own minds and so on, as opposed to, no, we are part of a social flow. And self-compassion really is the ability to be deeply empathic and understanding of your mind and the minds of others. You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Hello there. Welcome back to Wisdom for Wellbeing. I am really delighted to have you here today. And if you did not tune in last week to our episode, Exploring Compassion with the Compassion Focus Therapy founder, Professor Paul Gilbert, I highly, highly recommend that you jump back to that episode. Generally, each Wisdom for Wellbeing episode sits alone and you consume it and that is the entirety of the experience. However, Professor Paul Gilbert has such a wealth of wisdom, of information to share with us that his interview actually has been split into two episodes to make it more easily consumable. The first of which was last week where Professor Gilbert shares how he came to develop compassion-focused therapy, where he shares about the wisdom and the courage of the practice of compassion. And I think that's a really useful place for you to start. If you did tune in, get excited for this week. And even if you're just choosing to jump in here, brilliant. We're going to be exploring the flows of compassion, the three arms. Compassion is not just the practice of self-compassion that's more popularized, that we hear more about. There are different ways that compassion flows from us and to us. From there, we're going to be exploring the dark side of humanity, you know, the violent, vengeful nature that we as humans have, which we can move through by the generation, the seeding of compassion. In the context of everything that's been unfolding in the Ukraine, this is particularly topical right now, and I think you're going to get a lot from it, leading into some compassion-focused practices that you can actually do cultivating your mind and your body to really generate seeds of compassion in your heart. So Professor Paul Gilbert is a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Derby and an honorary visiting professor at the University of Queensland. Until his retirement from the National Health Service in 2016, he was a consultant clinical psychologist. So that was for over 40 years. He has researched evolutionary approaches to psychopathology with a special focus on mood, shame, and self-criticism in various mental health difficulties for which compassion-focused therapy was actually developed. He was made a fellow of the British Psychological Society in 1993, and he was president from 2002 to 2004 and was a member of the first British government's NICE Guidelines for Depression. He has written and edited over 23 books, 300 papers, and book chapters. And in 2006, he established the Compassionate Mind Foundation as an international charity with a mission statement to promote well-being through the scientific understanding and application of compassion. 
In 2006, he established the Compassionate Mind Foundation as an international charity with a mission statement to promote well-being through the scientific understanding and application of compassion. So you can head to compassionatemind.co.uk. There are now a number of sister foundations in other countries, including Australia, and he was awarded an OBE by the Queen in March 2011 for services to mental health. He established and is the director of the Center for Compassion Research and Training at Derby University in the UK. And his latest book is a major edited book with Professor G. Simos. It's called Compassion, Clinical Practice and Applications. So we are going to dive into compassion here. And at the end, like I said, you'll learn about the practice, the cultivation of compassion. And throughout this interview, you'll be learning about the application. I hope that you enjoy this episode, this interview, as much as I know I did. I think it's such a powerful conversation because Professor Paul Gilbert's wisdom and clear compassion is really felt. So allow yourself to be kind of bathed in this energy, this intention, sparking that seed so that you can walk away from this episode feeling more empowered to cultivate compassion in your own community. All right, without further ado, let me introduce you to Professor Gilbert now. The most important things when times are hard, can you bring a light? Can you bring encouragement? Can you bring support? If you can do that, when times are difficult and it's not going well and you're really cocking things up, but you can still bring a sense of support and encouragement to yourself to try as best you can to resolve, that will help you. If, on the other hand, when you fail, you start going for the beat-up job against yourself, that's really going to make it difficult for you now. Um, so don't make things more harder than they are. You know, life is hard enough as it is. You don't need to treat yourself harshly because that makes it really tough. Psychological judo and, you know, essentially compassion being the skill to help us fall. What I love about compassion-focused therapy, Paul, is it's not just, you know, we, we do hear about self-compassion and, and self-kindness, which, you know, is obviously a very important skill, but that's not all there is. It's not just about being kind to ourselves and our mind, is it? There, there's three arms that yeah. you speak to, and I, I'd love to hear you describe them for us and talk us through their importance. Yeah, well, there's there's a lot of threes in CFT. <laughs> so I do want to say, you know, kindness is really important. But, you know, if you're working, say, with very depressed moms who've lost their feelings for their kids and everything, you start talking about kindness and try to feel kind for themselves. They can't. That's the whole point is that that system is gone. It's dead. It's, it's depressed. Depression has knocked it out. So you have to work with behavior. Okay, so you start off with behavior and say, okay, so if you were the mother you wanted to be, right, you weren't depressed mother, what would you do? And, of course, nearly all clients will say, oh, I'd like to do this, I'd like to do that. So you say, so the first thing, then, you have compassion and motivation to your child. Your problem is you've lost the feeling. That's the problem, right? But your motivation to see your child grow and flourish, that's still there. You don't want to see them sort of fall off a cliff or something. Uh, <clears throat> with some clients who are very psychotic, it's a little tricky. But for the majority, they begin to see you have to make a distinction between these different types of emotional feeling and that we're going to take you firstly into motivation, into behavior, and then move you through that way. So that's just to make that point. And later, um, the issue of kindness and, and so forth 
uh, can be very important. So we're not doing that. But you know, where we were developed as a therapy, um, whereas other things were not more of self help. So. What, what was the other part of your question? The three arms. So there was, um, you were just describing, oh, like, arms, yeah, compassion <laughs> with the mother towards baby. Yeah, so you can lose feeling and, and so on, so on. Um, so the, are you meaning the three emotions or do you mean the three Cs? I'm, uh, yeah, the, the compassion, you know, towards self being one, compassion towards other, and the ability to receive compassion, ah, okay, like yeah, how yeah, all, yeah. I should have said it. <laughs> so many yeah, C's, yeah, there are okay. threes. There's so many C's, yeah. Okay, so very quickly, the three C's, the three big C's, and then I come back to what we call the flow of compassion. Three big C's are um, compassion, callousness, and cruelty. And these are really the fundamentals that humans really need to grapple with. So compassion, as we've talked about that, sensitivity to suffering, itself and others and trying to do what you can to help them rather than hurt them and again that doesn't depend on love right there's all this stuff compassion is about love for it not really i mean in the buddhist uh text what they mean when they use the word love is benevolence i i wish you well i don't want you to suffer and i would do what i can but i don't need to like you and i don't need to love you uh, the dalai lama calls that sentimental compassion right yeah, i don't need that and if i may really dislike you a lot but on the other hand if i have an opportunity to stop you from suffering you know if you've had a car accident i call the ambulance and stay with you and so on <clears throat> so that that's very very important compassion is very different to love it's it's uh, love is great i'm not against that um so then then we have callousness now callousness is really the insensitivity to suffering right in other words i don't actually care really um, whether you suffer or whether you don't um, and that's really quite a problem in neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is basically a callous economic system where a competitive behavior, market share, profit value, that's the only thing that matters. And who gets hurt by that? Irrelevant. You know, if markets change and people will lose their jobs, well, that's just the market. That's unfortunate. We don't need to worry about them. So this is callousness, right? And uh, <clears throat> a lot of Western society is based on teaching people to be relatively indifferent to the suffering around them. <clears throat> the church is trying, <laughs> don't know if they do a good job or not. So that's important, that's callousness. And we, you know, like fossil fuel companies, they don't, in, they're not wanting to cause suffering, but they don't care that they do. Um, or they'll argue that, you know, if we don't have energy, then we're suffering another way. So they have arguments that way. But <clears throat> we've just had of all of our problems with our prime minister, as you probably, <laughs> It's, it's right. made the media here too. <laughs> so whatever. So that is an indifference. And we can become indifferent to our own suffering as well, right? We can drink too much and eat too much. We sort of, we're not intending to cause harm, but we're just not really paying attention to the harm that we do. We're kind of switched off and we're insensitive to it. And I'm as bad as anybody else. Not, not, it's, not, it's not a criticism, but it's just being aware that callous is when we become insensitive. Cruelty is when we deliberately want to cause it. Cause it. So callousness, I don't particularly want to cause it, but if I do, I don't really care. Uh, whereas cruelty, no, no, I really do. And that's vengeful. Okay. Now, vengefulness is really quite a problem in humanity i mean we have and also humans have a sadistic side that's why people are attracted to television programs that are really pretty sadistic actually uh think of the roman games and, and, and humans have this they're attracted to the dark side you know the, some of the tortures we've invented are just horrific so this is really 
the desire to cause suffering and to think about how best to cause suffering, that's a real major problem for humanity. And if whether you look in Ukraine or wherever it is, you're looking, the idea that we can win by causing you to suffer, that is terrible. That is terrible. And that is a curse of humanity. And we've been doing that for thousands of years, unfortunately. So compassion is what we strive for. Callousness, we want to try to get just wake people up, so pay attention, right? So, for example, vegetarians and vegans say, look, look to what's happening in the production of your meat. Look at the cruelty in that. Or whalers, look at, you know, the cruelty in whaling or whatever. Whereas cruelty is that, actually, no, I'm going to do things deliberately to make yourself go to war or bomb you or whatever it is. And um, or, you know, lock up all my political opponents and torture them. So some societies are really rooted in, in a cruel, um, in cruel regimes. So that's that. So then the next, so those are the big three, and they they have that they they have slightly different ways of dealing with them compassionately. The way you deal with callousness is very different from how you deal with cruelty. So then you took we talked about the flow of compassion, and this is where very very important, um, Caitlin, because your first experience of compassion is compassion coming into you from others. It's the care and affection and protection and love of your parents, right? Because you can't do anything. I mean, when you're born, uh, for, for quite a few years, you can't feed yourself, you can't protect yourself, you can't soothe yourself. I mean, you, very little you can do, actually. So the, the, your experience of receiving care has a profound effect on the maturation of your brain and your genes and so forth, but also your ability to trust other people. Uh, and so it, it, these are really fundamental uh, life skills. You know, your, the, the care that you have will help you regulate your emotions and, and so on and so on. So that, that's, the first, that's the first part. And if we can continue that through life, of recognizing that, you know, when we're stressed or having difficulties, there are people around we can talk to, we have friends or whatever. That, in a sense, is also part of self-compassion, as we see, the ability to trust others and realize you need help, go and get it, right? So that's important. Then, so being open to receiving compassion. Now, what we find in a lot of our clients is they're not open to it. You know, they feel ashamed. They don't want to talk about what's causing their problems. They feel they shouldn't have these problems. That they ought to be able to cope better and so on and so on. So they close down from turning to others or they don't trust others. I'm not going to tell you because I'm ashamed. If I tell you what goes on in my mind, then you won't like me, you know. You turn against me. And you get that in therapy too where some patients, they don't want to talk to you about what's really going on because they're frightened they will be rejected. So that's important. So in therapy, then we need to open that up because it's important that people can experience compassion coming in. They do have some capacity for trust. They do have some capacity for gratitude and appreciation. These are very, very important processes. So then the second one is compassion for others. Okay, so that what is it that touches us? What is it that turns our empathy on? What is it that turns it on, off? So we know, for example, that um, people can have a lot of empathy for some of the suffering in the world, but it doesn't get translated into action. Okay, so yes, I feel bad for what's going on in Ukraine or people starving in different parts of the world and so forth, but they never actually get around to doing anything, not contributing to charities or whatever. I don't actually do very much. And it's the same for ourselves. You know, I, 
I know that really my health would be much better if I went to the gym regularly and, and lost some weight. So I know that, but unfortunately getting the action to follow the motive can be tricky. So always the same. <clears throat> we can be very caring of other people, but we don't actually do anything about it. Yes, we need to improve the NHS so people can get access to health. And yes, we need a fairer society. And yes, we, you know, we've got to help the poor. Uh, but I don't think I'm going to pay for that. No, I don't want to pay taxes to do that. No, I don't want to do that. So you get these motivations, but actually then people don't follow through in behavior because they have all kinds of reasons either not to do it or maybe like me, they're just a bit lazy or something. So this distinction between motivation, the compassion motivation, which can be really quite profound in many, many people, but do they translate it into actions? Do they become, you know, if you do feel we live in an unjust society and the rich are doing all of the, you know, and the poor are doing all the heavy lifting. What do we do politically? So compassion has to have a political focus to it. You know, we have to be interested in <coughs> compassion to others, creating compassionate communities, compassion politics, compassionate schools. You know, this process of creating a compassionate world means that we have to help people think about what would it be like if people really started to live to be helpful, not harmful, and try as best we can to notice when we're perhaps being callous, you know, we're kind of our own self-interests are turning off our interest in helping others. So these are really important things. And also we now know that when people do orientate themselves to be helpful to others, this gives them a real sense of meaning. It can be very joyful. You know, we often think of compassion as very um, struggling and painful, which it can be, but it can also be very joyful. And then you know what happened during the COVID crisis, I mean, people just rallied around each other in incredible ways. And uh, a lot of people talk about the renewed sense of community, even though we couldn't meet each other, it was a sense that we were pulling together. I think in this country, we had something like 500,000 people volunteer to be supporters of the NHS to go out and help and things. Wow, it's pretty profound, isn't it, to see that? It's very profound, right? So compassion coming in, very, very important. Can you do that, the background to doing that? Because you know, particularly in intimate relationships, you know, if you can allow your partner to care for you, generally care for you, and you can share with them and so on and so on. These are really good groundings for a good relationship. Um, but if you're self-compulsively self-reliant and you keep, you know, then that's not so good. So the third one then is um, self-compassion. So what do we mean by self-compassion? <clears throat> well, self-compassion is having a wisdom about the self. In our view, firstly, how can you be compassionate to yourself if you don't really know what it is to help yourself? You don't really know why you're here, how you got here, how you were made, what goes on in your mind. How can you have compassion for yourself? I mean, okay, you can say, well, all living things suffer, so, and that's okay. But in CFT, we want to get a much deeper understanding about why developing compassion is such a phenomenally important thing because you not <clears throat> you realize that you like every other human being on this planet don't want to suffer you don't want to suffer you you'd rather be happy than suffering and you didn't choose to have to be to, to suffer okay you can say oh this is my fault because i did this or i did that or whatever but not in the big sense in the big sense you have a brain that's been made for you so self-compassion then starts off with a deep wisdom then really thinking carefully about okay so what is it that I will need? How can I understand myself? How can I have empathy for myself? How can I understand my emotions and my uh, my motives and my emotions? How can I learn to become more self-aware and more self-discerning, more orientated to really thinking about what would be happy? 
how what would help me become healthy what would help me become happy okay for example if you walk down the road and when you're walking down the road you make the decision to be to create a friendly space around you right so you are like a friendly energy moving down the street. Imagine that. And so therefore, whenever you have an opportunity, you smile at people. You look at them in the eye, you smile at them and nod to them. Then you, they will smile back. What's happened in their brain is you've given them a little buzz of dopamine, actually. They, they acknowledge your smile and they acknowledge that this is, you are a friendly person and that settles them. Can you imagine being on a tube and people smile at each other and you get the sense that this is a really friendly as opposed to being on the tube, nobody looks at each other, nobody talks to each other. You know, there's a couple of people that seem quite drunk and aggressive in the corner. Very different. You can. The, the thing is, we can create very different atmospheres, right? <clears throat> so, learning to have that friendliness to others is really good for you too. So then, the third thing really is that okay. So now I can actually practice ways of what I can create compassion in myself. So I can do breathing exercises, which will stimulate. Um, a part of the autonomic system called the vagus nerve, which is really quite important. I can do exercises of imagining compassion and practicing compassionate behavior, which will have an impact on my brain. If I train, it affects my brain. And that's because of what is called neuroplasticity. Your brain changes by how you use it. So I can practice building my compassionate muscles, as it were, just like going to the gym. The more I practice, the stronger I get at it, right? So that's self-compassion and remembering that being compassionate to yourself is important when the, the, the lights go out, you know, when life is dark. And that's why we always say that in CFT, we have compassion for the dark side, the dark side of your mind when you get into the darkness of your own mind, but also understanding compassion for the problems in the world because um, we have to try to resolve so many of our differences by having a sense of respect, equality, and caring for each other, right? So if you're in a negotiation, you're not so interested in the positions that people take because they would take positions over me against you and you did this and I did this, but actually mutual interests. But what is our, in our mutual interest? What would we get out of peace? What would we get out of conflict resolutions? How can we resolve conflicts in such a way that we can all gain a little bit? Okay, so these are these are kind of key issues, which are all really to do with, as you say, the flow of compassion, because really they're all supporting each other. And although you can take out self-compassion, make it just a single set of skills, we prefer not to do that. We see self-compassion as part of the flow of, you know, self-compassion as being able to turn to others, right? And recognizing at this point, I need your help. And I can take it and I can be grateful for it. And it's been great. Thank you so much. And when you need help, I will give you help. So we create these reciprocal caring relationships. And that's part of being self-compassionate, right? One of the problems that is an over-focus on self-compassion is the things you do for yourself. It's neoliberalism again. You know, we, we create this sense of an individual self that's stuck out there and doing things in their own minds and so on as opposed to, no, we are part of a social flow. And self-compassion really is the ability to be deeply empathic and understanding of your mind and the minds of others. So there's this real interconnectedness in this and that in extending compassion out, we're bringing it in and it's all connected. So Paul, with, with that, when, you know, you highlighted earlier in the conversation 
how important relationship is. And really in these, these flows of compassion, we're seeing again, relationship is so vital and important. And we're also seeing, as you mentioned, you know, some real suffering in the world, you know, in terms of what's happening in the Ukraine, you know, in terms of our neoliberal system, how do we manage this? You know, how do we, how do we hold this suffering, the callousness, the um, cruelty, maintain some groundedness so that we can hopefully move forward? Like, how do how do we as individuals cultivate compassion to hopefully extend out and move our world in a direction that does feel like it embodies what we would hope for you know that sense of connectedness and perhaps kindness yeah so all of those pro-social things moral behavior they're all very very important for the, so the first thing is it's very easy to be overwhelmed by it oh it's just too much you know it's been going on for thousands of years blah 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 so the key thing is actually picking on something relatively small that's important to you and that is linked to compassion. Now, there's a lovely story of um, 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 a man and his girlfriend or his woman and his boyfriend, whichever way around you want to see it, or partners walking on the road. Anyway, so the woman is, <clears throat> there's been the storm and all these starfish have been thrown up, thousands and thousands of starfish over the, over the beach are being thrown up on the beach. And as she's walking along, she's picking them up and throwing them back into the, the sea. And the guy says, why are you doing that? There are thousands and thousands here. Why are you doing that? And she said, because it matters to the one I throw back. Right? So if we can only do one thing, right, then rather than thinking, oh, but it's too much, it's too big, I can't cope, right? The key thing is not, the first compassionate principle is don't be overwhelmed by the pain of the world. Because that's easy to do, and then that kind of knocks everybody out, doesn't it, really? So then we say, okay, I didn't create that. <laughs> it's just nature has created this mess. But what I'll try and do is uh, maybe in this little area, maybe to help my neighbor, or maybe I'll try and bring a bit of compassion into the world by doing something for a charity, or, or whatever it is that's important to you. Focus on the doable first, right? Rather than being overwhelmed by what's also bad, it's also difficult. So the other thing that's <clears throat> really quite important, I think, is that when we're in any conflict situation, is to be very aware of our desire for retaliation or aggression or whatever. Conflict situations are tricky. Now, the Dalai Lama tells an interesting story about one of his monks who was captured by the Chinese and tortured. And when he was released and came out, he was asked, did you ever feel in danger? And he said, oh, yeah that I would lose my compassion for my torturers. Now, the moral of the story is, is this, really, that when you're in a situation like Ukraine, that country has been soaked in hatred. I mean, Putin has just, you could have laced it, you could have bombed hatred from the skies, basically. That is going to be a big issue, okay? At some point when this conflict resolves, how are we going to, deal with the terrible hatred that's been left. Now, we have some kind of experience of this, like with Germany and, and South Africa. And you know, I run a Creating Compassionate World series, and I've been interviewing people who were part of the truth and reconciliation in South Africa, which is extraordinary what they were doing. So ha we do have some wisdom about how do we deal with societies that have been so violent to each other that they've just lived these terrible wombs of hatred because it's here all over the world. So what is the compassionate position to do? What, what, what is that compassionate position? And there are ways in which we now know successful negotiators 
can work with communities that have been uh, uh, very violent and, and cruel to each other. So, and we can build on that. So there is compassionate wisdoms out there, okay? But the intention, what is the intention? The intention is to heal hatred. The intention is to bring these communities back together somehow. The intention is to try to provide opportunities for mutual flourishing. That's the intention. That's a compassionate intention. That's a compassionate intention, right? So um, <clears throat> there is no other intention. It's not a competitive intention. It's not a sexual intention. It's not, you know, a violent intention. It's not a callous intention. It's a very clear, compassionate intention. So when we understand that, <clears throat> that basically we need the wisdom as well as the courage, because some of the people that were working at Truth and Reconciliation, the courage that they had to face the violence in the communities was extraordinary, actually. So courage and wisdom that is what you need when you're dealing with societies and, and communities that are soaked in hatred of the other. And it's, 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 a, it's a really skilled thing to be doing, you know. So, But the, what's heartening is that we are beginning to um, gain the wisdom of how to do it. You know, there are some very, very fascinating and wonderful people who are working with how do you heal hatred in communities because... That when this war ends, eventually, uh, we're going to be left with a sea of hatred. Which, yes, it's beautiful to know that that wisdom is out there because that's an interesting and I think really important perspective for all of us to hold that it's not, I mean, what's happening right now is atrocious and there's going to be lingering effects beyond just bombing and rebuilding yeah. the physical buildings. It's going to be building that sense of connection and compassion, essentially connectedness. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. So the key thing, right, is when you're getting individuals that seed hatred, that we seed compassion, right? So <clears throat> the point of the story of the Dalai Lama and the monk was that be very careful that their dark side doesn't stir up you. Their dark side doesn't stir up your vengeance, your desire to see them suffer, your desire to smash them, destroy them, torture them back. You know, that's when you get into these cycles of vengeance. And, you know, if you look at the history of humanity, I'm afraid cycles of vengeance are absolutely vicious and humans are potentially incredibly nasty i mean we that's the other part of compassion i think the heroic part of compassion is to come to terms with the fact that humans are potentially a very dangerous very terrifying very nasty species indeed now as a member of that species i have to take some sort of action okay so i see this and i can work out why that is so what can I bring into the world that could actually start to address that, to address the dark side? Because that's such an important thing. And there's a story I often tell, which is, uh, how did I get into this? It was, uh, was in 1995, and it was the ending, it was the 50th anniversary of the ending of the Second World War and the liberation of concentration camps, right? And the BBC did this amazing program, three hours, on what actually went on in those concentration camps, including the, you know, the torturing of children and using them for experiments and things. And I have to say, I was never the same after. And they, because I had children at the time, young children. So, uh, I mean, I just cried through quite a lot of it because of what was happening. And, you know, they found these letters in, in the mattresses of mothers who'd been writing to their children, you know, I hope you're okay, I hope you're safe that they were dying in some bloody hospital, a terrible disease. So um, <clears throat> I cried a lot through that, and I was never the same. 
And I think what it did was for me to realize that humans are really quite a terrified species, actually. You know, we get into all this stuff about, oh, you're designed for love and all. No, 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 no. It isn't like that. You know, we have the potential to be fantastically compassionate. We will lay down our lives in our COVID wards or fighting fires to save others or do that. But on the other side, we have the potential to be incredibly harmful and we must take responsibility for that. We can't keep just saying, oh, we're basically, we're a loving species. No, we're not. We have the potential to be fantastic, but also awful. And compassion is the courage and the wisdom to address the dark side, not to be naive. You know, you create the conditions for it and the devil will emerge. You know, I mean, I mean that metaphorically, not really. Demons will arise. Um, and that's very clear. And so we have to come together to think about how are we going to create a world? How are we going to create a United Nations? How are we going to create systems of government? that we're not constantly stimulating the demons in us, you know, because we, we, we are a lot better than we were, say, 200 years ago, we, but we have a lot to do. Um, so that's my, that's my compassion in the world speech. I think that's really <laughs> important, you know, and I, th I think that's really important for us to hold and, as you said, not be naive to. And you also said that still, you know, we need to take action, that sometimes the overwhelmingness when we kind of almost perhaps get into some sort of a freeze response when we see like the grossness of suffering and injustice, but yet there's still action we can do. And you described so beautifully, you know, smiling at someone on the tube, you know, these little gestures of kindness of, mm. and compassion, these actions that we can take to make the world, um, you know, a, a place that we want to hand down to our children. Would, would you mind just talking us through a couple of exercises that we might be able to do to cultivate compassion in ourselves, knowing that this is what we can then take into the world? As you said earlier, you know, we, we were dealt the cards that we were dealt at birth. And yet in this moment, we do have a choice about how we show up to an extent. We don't get to choose our thoughts, our feelings, but we can choose to engage in practices that might allow us to move into that, you know, compassion drive, into that sense of courage, wisdom. How? How can we do this? Yeah, so that's great. So the thing, key, one of the key things, I think, in the Buddhist traditions and then psychotherapy is developing mind awareness. Be just becoming more aware of what's happening in your mind as it's happening. You become aware of how you're thinking about things, being able to stand back and think about things. So they, these are exercises that are quite useful. So, for example, if you imagine having a conflict with somebody, being arguing with somebody, perhaps your partner or something, then just for a moment, imagine that you are the partner and you can see yourself, you can see your own face, you can see the anger in your face, you can hear the anger in your words and it's being directed at you. What's that like? You know, Is that going to get you what you want? I mean, are you going to stimulate the person that you're arguing with into collaborating with you or are you just gonna are you just attacking them because you has your angry side got the better of you right because it can and it does all the time but is that what you want right maybe maybe not um so learning how to become self-aware just thinking about if i was to hear my own communications how would i respond right so that's the important thing and taking the position of the other imagining what it is for the other that's important and then for you, in terms of exercises, we have a number of exercises, which is one of which is called um, helping the body support the mind. Okay, so these exercises are designed to work directly on your body and your physiological system and your brain. Now, exercises for your brain are linked into imaginations. 
Why? Because what you imagine changes your brain, right? If you are, um, if you're very hungry and you see a wonderful meal, that will stimulate your stomach acids, and you think, "Oh yeah, I must eat that." If, on the other hand, you have no money and you just imagine this wonderful meal, that stimulates the same pathways in your brain. Your imagination can stimulate those pathways. If you see something very sexy on the television, that will get you cause arousal. But if you just lay in bed by yourself and imagine it, you can stimulate your own sexual system. That's extraordinary. Your imagination, what you create in your head, can stimulate a very small set of cells in the middle of your brain, which will release hormones into your body. So when you stand back and you think about it like that, you think, wow, yeah, that's right. Look, I can use my imagination. And actually, if you was to do um, these tantric sexual things, they'd get you to track what happens in your body when you think of that, what happens in your body when you think of that. And you can track how your imagination is actually stimulating different parts of your body. Extraordinary, right? Compassion is the same. If you start to imagine compassion and work with compassion imagery, they will be stimulating systems in your brain. That's what they do. They're not, you know, they're not brain neutral. So those two things go together, supporting the body to support the mind and then using the mind to stimulate the body. Okay, let me take you through them then. Those two things, right? Because they work together, those two things. So firstly then, how can we get our vagus nerve going? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the key things is the breathing. Breathing is important. And there's somebody called Steve Porges, P-O-R-G-E-S, Steve Porges. If you put him into Google or some other search machine, because I shouldn't mention that, um, you'll get quite a lot on, on that. Now, Steve Porges has done a lot on developing exercises, breathing patterns and drumming and singing and using cold water to stimulate the vagus nerve. So that's quite useful to go and look that up. How can you stimulate the vagus nerve? Because your vagus nerve really which is part of your autonomic nervous system, um, is really good for compassion. <laughs> just say that much. Just say that's that's very good for you. So you want to stimulate that. So this is the breathing pattern that we advise. Firstly, you have to sit up with your shoulders up and back, okay, so that you open the chest. The chest should be open, the diaphragm lifted. So you can practice that if you crouch over your computer, your shoulders immediately come in and the curve in your back is outwards. Whereas when you lift your shoulders up and back, your curve is inwards. And when your curve is inwards in, in the small of your back, this will lift your diaphragm. Now, for the beneficial effects of soothing with the breathing, then you want a lifted diaphragm. If you're all crunched up like this, it doesn't really do it for you. So ensure then that your shoulders are in line with your hips, open chest, lifted the diaphragm, nice inner curve, curve pointing inwards. And then you breathe in through your nose and out through your nose. And you breathe at about five um, second breaths, so about four breaths, four to five breaths per minute. And you breathe in uh, for about five seconds counting. And then you notice just a little top of the breath, two seconds, and then you just let the breath ease out for a five seconds. Notice the bottom of the breath. Now, many of these exercises are on our website, so you can go and listen to them. But so you got this. So there are three things about the breath, the depth of the breath. So you imagine the breath coming down into your diaphragm. You want your diaphragm to do the breathing, not no movement up here. You don't want that. You, this, this should be stable and all of the breath should come from the diaphragm. That's important as best you can. 
feel, feel your lungs, but whatever. And then you imagine the breath going deep down, even to the base of your spine. You imagine this breath really going deep down into your body as you're breathing in. And then as you're breathing out, that's the focus of the vagus. The out breath is the vagus thing. So really imagine the breath just leaving your nose very gently, but your lungs becoming empty. So you don't want a half breath and a half breath, just reasonably full lungs, reasonably empty. So that's important. So you've got the depth of the breath, the rhythm of the breath, and the rate of the breath. Those three things are really crucial. So breathing at about four to five breaths per minute, nice depth of the breath, Imagine the breath coming down to the diagram and nice um, smoothness of the rest. So the breath comes in smoothly and then out smoothly. Now you can do lots of other things with the breath. You can imagine um, breathing in white light and breathing out white light. In fact, we have an exercise which we call energizing compassion where we, we imagine this energizing gives you energy, the joy of being compassionate. Yes, I'm going to engage the world. I'm going to Try and do what I can to be helpful. <laughs> so there's an energizing component to it. So, and the other point is learning to ground in your body. So feeling your feet flat on the floor. Um, then the next thing is that when you're doing this, right, practice creating different uh, facial expressions. Okay, so creating a facial expression of friendliness. Imagine that you're seeing your friend or you're talking to a friend. Um, and that your face is communicating that friendship, right? So, so you're doing, so you got your posture, you've got your breathing pattern going, right? That's okay, you're doing that. And now you're creating a friendly facial expression. But try this, and then go, go back to a neutral facial, or go, or go into an angry expression, okay? And just notice, that's right, that you're doing that. And just <laughs> notice what, when you have different facial expressions with this uh, breathing pattern, okay? It's, it's really interesting. And you just have a neutral one and then have a really genuinely friendly one. Notice what happens in your body, what happens to your feelings, because your facial expressions and you're imagining this friendly um, emotion affects your brain, right? But anyway, you'll see that. You'll see that the moment you go to a neutral face or even a slightly angry face, all of that positive feeling associated with compassion goes. You, you can't lose it. So facial expressions are really quite important. So then the next thing is voice tone, <clears throat> creating a friendly voice tone. So on the out breath, then you create, so now you've got your posture, you've got your breathing rate, you've got your friendly face, right? Now on the out breath, you focus on the concept of mind slowing down, right? Body slowing down, and you just focus on that. And it has to be a very gentle voice, you know. Mind slowing down. Mind slowing down. Body slowing. And just feel that sense of slowing. As you're breathing, that, that slower um, pace of breathing, as you're, breathing, as you're imagining that, just imagine that, you know, imagine that you can just feel everything slowing down, feeling yourself grounding. And then, after a while, if you're sitting on the chair, just notice the chair is now holding you up and feel the weight of you in the chair and just allow the chair to hold you, right? What's that like just to be held by the chair? Um, so those are all kinds of things you can do. And then we go into imagery. Now, remember what we said about imagery. The other thing I should say about imagery is that imagery can be very fleeting. It can be sensory. It can be impressionistic. 
Okay, imagery isn't about creating clear polaroid pictures in your mind. You don't need that. It's like with your sexual imagery, you might not see very much, but it gives you a sense of it's what happens in your body is the key thing, not how clear your imagery is. And many of our clients, when they do imagery, they say, well, I didn't really see anything. I just had a sense of something. I had a sense of somebody. Okay, so let's do the imagery then. So there are a number of different imageries that you can practice in CFT. One is we call safe place. And all this is really is with, as you're breathing, try and create a sense of what a safe place would be for you. It, would it be a daytime or a nighttime? What would the weather be like? Would you be indoors or outdoors if you're outdoors? What sort of outdoors would you be in a beautiful garden by the beach or up a mountain, whatever? Just mess around, really play around. Um, you don't have to find any particular safe place. Just the sense of a safe place is absolutely fine. You can have loads of different ones if you want. So that's the first thing. And then if you were in a safe place, what would you do? Now, some of our clients say, well, I would just sort of chill out really. But others say, oh, I wouldn't want to just chill out. I'd want to do something. Uh, so what would you want to do? Oh, well, I don't know. Maybe I'd like to fly. Can I fly? Now, we had this because it was a class. A class. Um, we were doing safe place with a, with a in a group of uh, people who'd had a lot of abuse, actually. And this person said, well, this concept of feeling safe, I feel safe when I'm on my motorbike and I can imagine myself in America or somewhere or maybe Australia where there's just an empty road and there's nothing on the horizon and I just sit on my bike and I'm just traveling with the hair in, wind in my hair and so forth. So for her, that's where we began, safe place. Just start where you can't currently feel safe. Let's start with that. Um, so, but just getting the idea of what would you do if you were safe? Are you somebody that can think of things you'd like to do? How would you play? Would you have people there with you or not there with you? Would you have your friends there with you or not there with you? So all of those things are really quite important in safe place. So that's, <coughs> we can do quite a lot of work around safe place because a lot of our clients have never really felt safe and it's strange for them to feel safe. And we say, okay, imagine this place welcomes you. So the trees welcome you, the sky welcomes you, the, the, the mountains in the distance are so pleased that you're here. Imagine that. So these are all kind of imagining imagines, imaginings that stimulate belonging. So then the next thing is, okay, supposing you could imagine another mind that was totally and utterly committed to you, what would that mind be like? Right Now, a lot of our clients say, oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. And you say, okay, well, just suppose, you know, what would you like? Would you like the, it to understand you? Or... Yeah, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> that would be kind of so maybe having a mind that understands you and, and realizes all of the struggles of your life that would be something but that was like you can imagine that imagine a mind that could yeah but nobody's ever done that for me okay that's important so let's just imagine that somebody could or would just create it you know um so we take people through that and through what it would be like to be understood what it'd be like to have somebody that was empathic to you now in the buddhist position which is really interesting is that these imagery in meditations are often on what are called bodhisattvas. These are sort of highly evolved spiritual beings. And the, the thing. But how did they get there? Well, they get there, to the, according to the Buddhist position, through multiple incarnations. So they have been the murdered, but they've also been the murderer. They've been the raped, but they've also been the rapist. Now, if you want to get hold of that, uh, look at a poem by... 
Tiknan Han, which you can get on the internet, is called Call Me By My True Name. Um, I'll put this in the show notes, listeners, I'll, I'll connect it so listeners can yeah, grab connect it there. That, that is this whole idea about how do we get to think? Because in the Buddhist positions, these bodhisattvas have been in all positions. They know all the positions. They know the, the trickiness of the human mind, how difficult it is, how we can get caught up in all this stuff. So when you're creating your compassionate image, you're not creating this sort of image that doesn't know anything about being human. And this is quite important. I'm personally not that religious, but the concept of Christ was the idea about descending into experience the suffering of humanity so that, that the whole process of uh, understanding what it is, uh, what compassion is, is to understand what it is to suffer. And that's why we talk about the compassion of Christ. We don't talk about what a kind man he was to die for us. We don't say that. No, it's the compassion of Christ. And that's because it is this descending into suffering and beginning to, to understand it. So this is really quite important. And so when you're doing your compassion imagery, your compassion image isn't someone or it's not a mind that has no idea what it is to be human, but I'm just going to be nice to you. No, no. This mind is a mind that's been where you are. It's been where you are. It, it, it understands what it is to be depressed or to have your mind full of rage or whatever it is or be stuck with, you know, caught up in drinks and alcohol or whatever. It knows what it's like, right? So it's not like this disconnected being, but this is what we would call the, the self, the bodhisattva is that which has moved beyond it, has been able to work with it, to understand it and move on and is now in a position because they have had enlightenment themselves, they now have the intention to bring support and help to all those who suffer like it has, okay? Just like it has, okay? So now I'm here to support and help you because as your image, I understand what it's like to suffer as you are suffering. And uh, as the compassionate image, I strongly desire for you not to suffer in that way. So, so when you create your compassionate image, that's how you create it. Then you imagine, okay, so what would your image look like? Would it be male or female? Can you have both or one or whatever? And just notice what would it be like if you felt that communicating with you? So it's no different really than if you were in a sex clinic for them to say, okay, let's work with your fantasies. Let's see what fantasies really work in your body. It's the same thing really, only this time in compassion, obviously, we're working with compassion images, creating images that you feel yeah, yeah, they're not here to criticize shame, put me down or tell me what to do, none of that stuff. They're just here as a support to validate and encourage and understand my pain. That's what they're here to do. So listeners um, get to create something that for them engenders that, you know, and that it can be unique to each of us. Like I love this idea that we're moving into our bodies, having this real visceral sense, like you're, um, you've talked through uh, Stephen Forge's work in polyvagal theory and kind of using the body as a way to start to shift into um, that compassionate physiological state and then bringing imagery that for us really engenders that heartfeltness and that sense of compassion based on our belief systems, how we vision different um, minds to be perhaps. Yes, that's right. And your image isn't soothing away. Your image is giving you the courage and wisdom to face what you might need to face, right? That's yeah, thank you for that. So it's with you. 
into pain, not the kind of let's soothe this away. So, um, yeah, that's you're absolutely right. That's really powerful. That's, Thank you for reminding right. that, like that. The, uh, you know, we're we're descending, we're going. It, it's not soothing, avoidance. It's it's action. Compassion is an action. It's a way of um, uh, yeah. courageous action, as you said, Paul. It you is just, courageous action. You, you mentioned that listeners could grab more resources on your website. So that's compassionatemind.co.uk. Where yeah. else can listeners connect with you and your work? Well, mainly through the website. I mean, obviously, we have a number of books. There's a new book out called Compassion Focus Therapy, which uh, is with uh, Grigoris Simnos. Um, so you can get that. Um, so there's quite a few books for people if they want to go onto Amazon or wherever and have a look. Um, but mostly... Oh, what we do is through our Compassion of Mind website. Now, there are places in Australia. Um, there is a Compassion Focused Therapy support group in Australia. Um, so people maybe could contact you if, they, if, they, um, if they're interested. Um, James Kirby in, in Brisbane is doing a lot of research in compassion. So you can contact him at the University of Queensland. So there's some wonderful things going on in Australia, actually, and I should be there in july end of july yes we'll have to get those details as well so we can share um share as well because that's exciting to hear and i wasn't aware of that paul thank you so much for your time for your compassion and courageously guiding us through this conversation and you know all of the research you've done in this area research and practice you know distilling it to these actions that we can do to help navigate our tricky mind and help move away from a cruel and callous world to a compassionate world that you know as, as you so beautifully kind of inferred that our, our children and the like will grow up into through our efforts with ourselves and others today yeah, great. And uh, the other thing I would say, if you're interested in the heroic side of compassion, then check out Philip Simbardo. Philip Simbardo. He was the guy that did a lot of work on the Stanford experiments and the, the origins of cruelty and things. But he's also doing wonderful work on compa the Compassionate Hero Project, and that's brilliant. Also, Paul Ekman, somebody called Paul Ekman, E-K-M-A-N, uh, who does stuff on what he calls global compassion, the process of global compassion. So um, <clears throat> there's some wonderful um, there's some wonderful processes that are going on all over the world of, of, of working with compassion, seeing the heroic side of compassion, you know, this courage and wisdom, which is central to it. So you know, have some fun, explore around. Amazing, and listeners, I'll put I'll put those details in the show notes as well. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Paul. There is so much wisdom to be gleaned around how we actually show up in our lives and our worlds, how we cultivate this muscle of compassion through the practices that Paul so kindly introduced us to. And there are many more practices. He has beautiful offerings. If you go to compassionatemind.co.uk, guided meditations and the likes can be found there. You can also head to drcaitlin.com. Everything will be linked up in the show notes so that you can easily find these resources so that you can seed compassion rather than fighting violence, the dark side of humanity with vengefulness and the like. 
see compassion, cultivate compassion, smile as you walk out the doors into the world, even if you're walking right now while you're listening to this episode. Are there people around that you can send some warm thoughts, some compassion towards? Or putting your hands perhaps on your heart and reflecting on what you might need in these moments. Sending you compassion, sending you heart, sending you wishes for well-being in the week ahead. I look forward to dropping back into your earbuds next week on Wisdom for Well-Being. And please, if we haven't already connected, come find me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Caitlin. I love to stay connected and share offerings in these various mediums. I'll look forward to being again with you soon. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect, find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.